the collect that we read to begin the liturgy on this Sunday, it just occurred to me I was going to say something about it, and I didn't for the first two sermons. But I love the line in here, and united to one another with pure affection. Many years ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie, uh, as the Episcopal Church was beginning to get into one kerfuffle after another, uh, somebody asked him, uh, what unites the Anglican Communion? And he said, affection, mostly. It's been sorely tested recently, but I, I recommend, it's a little highfalutin, a book I'm reading now called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Disagree on Religion and Politics. It's a very interesting study about why that is so. Today I want to speak about or preach about the, the epistle from 2 Corinthians where Paul recounts a spiritual experience in the third person that he actually had himself. And then he speaks later in this text of the thorn in his flesh. So we might say a word about that because it's talked about often. And then I want to speak about the gospel where we have two. The technical term for what these are as they're put together editorially are pericopes. And I realized, just to please myself, I included that word in the, uh, in my, in the text of my sermon. And because Spellcheck uh, wouldn't identify it, I said periscopes. <laughs> <laughs> so every, every time I look at it, I say, oh, periscopes. I should have changed it. Did done better proofreading. But the first one is about Jesus not being uh, able to do anything in his hometown and is receiving the, the uh, big discount uh, about all of that. And then the second one is about sending the uh, apostles on a missionary journey and telling them how they're to comport themselves uh, during this journey, what, sh what they should do and how we might think about that ourselves. I hope we all think in some form that we're on some species of a missionary journey. It doesn't appear to be very Episcopalian to, uh, to say that. But uh, I'm glad we have the new presiding bishop that we have because he says we are in 2015 the Jesus movement. And we have to remember it. So, the situation on the ground is that some people have come into the Corinthian church in Paul's absence. And they have said to, to them, Paul may have told you that the Christian religion is about this, this, and this. But we're here to tell you that that is not the case. The Christian religion is about learning how to cultivate one spiritual experience after another. And that this focuses itself on the individual search for some species of spiritual enlightenment. 
And so in this part of 2 Corinthians, Paul is engaged in a lengthy defense of his apostleship. And he speaks today in this part of, uh, in the third person of a spiritual experience that he had. I know a person who. And it, it describes something that is, uh, that he has gone through and uh, says that he's not really um, going to speak about it. So hold that thought. And let me say uh, something I say once in a while that's important. In our branch of the Christian tradition, we have had two distinct threads running through it uh, that are about how we understand spirituality. So I'm going to mention the most recent first and the most ancient last. The first one is described in the, sort of the history of religions as pietism. Pietism is not unique to, the, to Anglicanism or the Church of England. In fact, Johann Sebastian Bach was a pietist. It was a particular approach to uh, a number of things in Christianity, uh, particularly in Reformed Christianity. And the pietists were the ones who believed and advanced in one form or another the belief in the necessity of a felt experience of God. That in order to, to be in, in order to feel yourself in, you had to feel something. You had to have an experience of God. Something that uh, was called, has been referred to as the consolation. And I suspect in American evangelical Christianity, uh, we had a, a parishioner here for a while who was the resident Protestant theologian at Santa Clara University. And he moved to another college in the East. And he used to say about the way in which Americans understand spirituality that we're all Methodists now, right? So what it means is we want to have your heart strangely warmed, like Wesley, who spoke about that, who was a priest of the Anglican Church, by the way, and died that way, but he is one of the founders of what we call Methodism. And it is the idea that we feel this. So in that brand, uh, another way to describe it in this country would be being born again. The belief, the personal conviction and feeling that Jesus is your personal Savior. Now there's nothing in the world that's wrong with that. But there's also been a lot of other ways that people have practiced uh, the spiritual life before pietism. And included in the way they did was some form of it, right? But the one that I like the best is the one that my teacher, Urban Holmes, taught us at Neshota House. He describes it in his little book, What is Anglicanism? in the chapter on spirituality. And he said, this is called mysticism. It's an unfortunate term because many people have a kind of twilight zone understanding of what that word means. You know, ooh, mysticism, 
But he described mysticism in the classic sense, which is the understanding of the spiritual life as a path towards the ascent to God that involves five things. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. So the first two are kind of hard to understand and obscure. Purgation is an old-fashioned word in the spiritual life, which means to purge yourself of the habits of being and relating that do not assist you in being next to the presence of God or touching the presence of God that is within every human person. And so you purge yourself of those things or uh, make the effort to do so, which can be a lifelong process. It isn't something that happens uh, instantaneously. Emptying is the process by which you push to the side. Uh, in, I should mention this because a lot of people, this stuff can elude people or they think, I've tried this and nothing happens. If you uh, aren't able to do centering prayer or meditation, understood in that sense, uh, John McQuarrie, the famous Anglican theologian, said, you know, sometimes you can think of prayer as thinking. And in fact, a certain kind of thinking in the history of the spiritual life is referred to as discursive meditation, which is the means by which you have a conversation with God or you're just ruminating about the stuff in your life. And sometimes when you sit quietly and are having a big think, you may have to have a big think about what to do next. And you're going to discover when you're thinking about, should I have a Roth IRA? You may need to focus and say, I can't be distracted by what MSNBC is saying right now or Fox News. I need to do something else. I need to focus. I need to push the distractions aside. So it's important to learn about the importance of emptying. Nobody can do this perfectly. But it is important to wish to do that. Discipline is the cultivation of the interior self-regulation that everybody needs to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. The self-regulation of instinctual drives. This is very hard for this culture to speak that way. The self-regulation of instinctual drives. There is nothing wrong with instinctual drives. But there's not a person sitting in this church who cannot get off the rails with instinctual drives. You need to learn how to keep them in order. So you, we need to exercise some form of discipline. In sports talk radio, it's called a work ethic. Well, he has a real good work ethic, which means he spends this much time in the weight room or he does a whole lot of stuff with regard to uh, working on different pitches or whatever it is, if he's a tight end in the NFL or whatever the case may be. 
So it's important to have some species of discipline. My, my, uh, the first dean of my seminary, Donald Parsons, used to say, it's an old-fashioned term in the spiritual life, you need to fulfill the duties of state. Get up and brush your teeth. Right? Do that. So discipline is important. Study. Being a student of the deep things, not only of Christian faith and belief, but of all of the things that you wish and need to be a student of. I want to make a commercial message because it's come home to me now so clearly at this point in my ministry. Uh, I've mentioned this many times recently. It's a hobby horse I'm riding. This is one, if not the most religious country in the Western world. It is also the most religiously ignorant country in the world. You know, people are constantly, you know, the, the Gallup uh, Opinion Center at Princeton for religious stuff uh, polls, all these kinds of polls, asking people questions. 20% of them say Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. You know, we, it's clueless. So this is a commercial message for maybe taking a peek at the Bible, a little look in, a little read in the Bible, a little look up something on the Internet about, what, uh, about how we think about a variety of religious topics. It might be an important thing to know. You know, because there are a huge amount of opinions about the faults of religion, right? And now those faults are far more accessible than they used to be. So it's important to have some knowledge about what it is. So being a student, don't you hope and wish when you go see the doctor that they have kept up? Don't you want your doctor to have been read up? And I would hope secretly prayed up about what they know and not are just taking the detailed person's word for it who's come into the office to sell drugs. Say, here, try this one. They've done some research, some thinking, I pray that that is true with my primary care physician. Now, we need to cooperate with this, don't we? We need to have the questions to ask and some knowledge ourselves. But it's always a bad idea just to get on the Internet and look up shingles, and before you know it, you're beside yourself, right? So you do need the doctor who's read up and been a student. That's true for many other things as well. So study is important, but the last one, the fifth one, is really the toughest one, and that's patience. Because most of us think, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Now it should happen for me. You know? I've rid my life of certain things. I've, I've uh, been able to be less distracted. I've... Uh, have some self-discipline now and cooperation. I've been reading up. 
And why, why is it taking so long? Why do I feel nothing happening? Well, you may be surprised that even if you don't think so, things have. Father Thomas Keating, when he was an abbot in a Trappist monastery, used to be called on to visit other monasteries. You know, they check up on what's going on in a particular monastery. And he'd speak with the abbot there, and then he would both speak corporately to all the monks, and then he would interview all the monks individually. And he would ask them, how are you doing with the spiritual life? And he'd listen to one complaint and one bellyache after another about their lack of progress, about how they felt they haven't made any progress or they're just treading water or they don't know. And he said, what they're telling me about what they do and what they've experienced is they're there. So, you know, to bring Buddha into this, maybe it's a good idea to be mindful. So if you think you haven't made any progress, pay a little more attention to what's going on. So things that used to baffle you become more clear. The problems don't go away, but they may be more manageable. Those kinds of things are happening to you. You may be making some progress, but you need to have patience. So Paul is speaking to a group of people who have been influenced by these traveling individuals who got in and he recounts this spiritual experience. And then he says, I have chosen, in, one, in so many words, uh, not to speak about this. But since all these people have arrived here and are boasting about their spiritual prowess and all of the spiritual experiences that they've had, I am going to now boast about my own spiritual experience. And he describes one. By the way, it's interesting because people who go through all this stuff in scholarship have found uh, extant literature of the first part of the first century in the time of Paul's writings, the 50s to 100 uh, AD. And they have described, found the writings of four rabbis who have recounted spiritual experiences just like the one he describes in 2 Corinthians. So Paul isn't just picking this out of the air. He's speaking in a way that the people alive when he was and read this letter would understand what he meant, what they meant. But he's also saying, I am not going to be too free with this kind of disseminating one spiritual experience after another. And here's then what he says. I felt I have the tendency to allow my enthusiasms to run riot. And I just want to tell everybody. But God has given me a thorn in the flesh to put a break on that. So it's important for me to understand that I should exercise. There's a famous movement some of you may have heard of in the Anglican Church. It's called the Catholic Revival in the Church of England. And it began in 1833. 
And this group of people who were part of the Oxford movement uh, wrote 90 tracts, T-R-A-C-T-S. And the title of one of the tracts was Concerning Reserve in Imparting Religious Knowledge. And what it meant was you need to be careful about going over the moon about recounting these experiences. When I was in seminary, my, the dean I just told you about said, in your ministry, you are going to meet people whose spiritual lives are far deeper than your own. And you should not feel badly about this. And you should be grateful and honored that they have shared those things with you. Humbly. And I believe that, and that is my personal experience. Humility is not groveling. Humility is not self-abasement. Humility is knowing yourself. Thomas Aquinas said, humility is knowing how high you can reach. It's knowing your limits. It's very hard in this culture to say that. We're in the Silicon Valley, and everybody's being encouraged to have their reach, extend their grasp, right? That's what the true entrepreneur wants to do. So, I'm just putting it out there at the group level. But the fact of the matter is some idea of self-knowledge is important and some reserve about spiritual experience. Ignatius Loyola spoke in tongues and nobody would have ever known this had they not read his private journals when he died. He never told anybody. It was something he did in his own private prayer. This is not to commend the speaking of tongues. This is merely to say that there are people who have spiritual gifts that don't talk about them. And so we should be that way too. Even when we're enthusiastic, we always ought to be able to have some sort of a, a break on that and understand we need to be careful. Lots of people have speculated about what the thorn in the side is. You know, I'm not going to list all of the things, but Reginald Fuller, the uh, great New Testament scholar in our tradition in the 20th century, uh, said uh, the problem with this is that the patient has been dead for 2,000 years. Right? So if you want to come up with something, come up with it. One's as good as the next. But something was affecting him spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. And he had to uh, cope with that as he lived. So we're in Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. And he's there and he cannot do anything right. He receives the big discount. Where does this guy get all these things? Is he not the carpenter? Is he not Mary's son? 
Are these not his brothers and his sisters? Where does he get this? Some commentators that I read this week to write this sermon uh, have said this about, about that. No one in Nazareth attributes God as the source of Jesus' power or the special relationship he has with God or that he is God's son and that Jesus has redefined, redefined its, his membership in the family. The reference to Jesus being Mary's son, the failure to identify him by his father's name, may reflect rumors about the legitimacy of his birth. The naming of his occupation stresses his unremarkable reputation and lack of religious credentials. In other words, the combination of divine power and human ordinariness makes no sense to them. The interesting thing is that this does not mean that they disagree with his teaching or the validity of his miracles, but rather that God that rather they don't believe that God is the source of his power and authority. They believe that this is from some other source. It does not forbid Jesus it does not forbid Jesus from performing mighty works entirely. And here they use the right word from the works of power. But it does inhibit him. So too can this happen with those near and dear to us if we discount their vision, their vocation, or feel threatened by the choices they make. Anybody sitting in this church who has decided in their life to go in a direction different than the one their families wanted them to go in, understand this completely. Know exactly what it means. I have tried in my life to avoid living vicariously through my children. My oldest son is developmentally disabled. He's special. And he's doing a great job. My young son's a regular guy. And I have had no influence on him directly on his decision to do what he's doing. I know people who have become sick or crazy because they are worried and nervous and guilty and upset because they're doing something that their parents didn't want them to do for their wider family. When I wanted to go to seminary, my mother said to me, why do you want to do this? Why don't you become a lawyer? You'd be a good lawyer. Because I don't want to be a lawyer. This is what I want to do. And the savior of the world could only do a little bit of mighty works because he was around the family who didn't want him to do what he did. 
So think about it. The second section in this gospel is Jesus sending the apostles out on some form of a missionary journey and his uh, description of what, how, what they ought to do and how they ought to do it is very precise and detailed in terms of carry a staff only, don't have two tunics, don't do this kind of thing. And go to the various places, accept the hospitality that is offered to you And if you do not receive hospitality or you receive rejection, shake the dust off of your feet. In 2000, I can't remember, when we invaded Iraq, President Bush went to Iraq and he was at a press conference. And there were a bunch of Iraqi reporters there, and they all took their shoe off and held their soul up to him. You don't want that in the Middle East. You don't want somebody to do that to you. And I expect that was as rude and as difficult in the time of Jesus as it was now. It means... Now, I don't want to get too fire and brimstone about this, but here's the deal. This is also talking about something in the ancient Near East known as the Shaliach Principle, which is if you reject the messengers, you have rejected the sender of the message. So if they were rejected as apostles of Jesus, they were not only rejected personally, Jesus was rejected. And the effects of the rejection of Jesus have consequences for the biblical writer. So as my morals and ethics professor used to say to us, he who has ears will hear. This week, remember that those spiritual insights that you have are important and should be cherished but humbly accepted and communicated humbly to others. Remember that those near and dear to you might choose a path that is hard for you to grasp or understand, and your discount can blunt their effectiveness. Remember also that you have been asked to join Christ in his work. That's what Ignatius Loyola says when you read the Bible and you put yourself in the scene in these stories. Who are you? And how does it help you join Christ in his work? Remember also that you have been asked to join Christ in his work, and that means embracing the fullness of God's mighty work in the world and your role in it. Amen.